Greetings and salutations, Southern California friends, and welcome back to the DeMarco Polo Show on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. We are podcasting, and we're here each and every week talking about all things Southern California. We're here to unearth the unexpected discoveries and spicy surprises and crazy controversies around our area. Who and what is in your own backyard that you don't even know? about. I'm your guest host, Marie Stone. So Barbara is on vacation this week. She's reposing on some Hawaiian beach probably as we speak. And uh, she's left us with some spicy, fun guests. Both of them are from Orange County. Both of them are writers. Both of them are endlessly interesting. I'm here, I'm right here with Jill Amadio. And Ed Humes will be here in the second half of the show talking garbage. (laughs) Jill Amadio is an author, ghostwriter, collaborator, and journalist specializing in biographies. She has published 13 books as co-author and ghostwriter and is the author of the Gunther Rahl Luftwaffe. Ace, my German is terrible, <laughs> and native gener- NATO general. Her books include My Vagabond Lover, an intimate biography of Rudy Valley, The Girl with the Hat, Entrepreneurial Transitions, Help, I've Hired a Lawyer, that would be a good one for, uh, for Evan's last show, uh, The Gloria Balaban Story, My Outrageous Good Fortune, many, many others, A Mystery, The Moment in Crime. She's ghostwritten memoirs for retired CEOs, a U.S. ambassador, and families requesting privately published biographies written only for the distribution to their family and friends. And uh, she's adapted one of her books to a screenplay for a client. Um, I could go on and on about Jill, but then we wouldn't have time to uh, time to chat. So, uh, Jill, you are you're in the studio. Welcome. Hello. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on. This is fun. Thanks I never have guests in the studio. This is fun. Oh, this really? Fun. Our little humble abode here out in the <laughs> out it's in the boonies. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me how you got interested in ghostwriting. What uh, what prompted this? Well, I used to work for a newspaper, and I would write articles of about 500 words each. And then I got a job with Entrepreneur Magazine in Irvine, and my articles expanded to 1,500, 2,000 words. And while I was uh, writing for them, somebody called in looking for a ghostwriter, which I'd never heard of. And they suggested me, because I was freelancing, Mm. And I said, well, my gosh, you know, it's bad enough writing a long magazine article. How could I write a book? (laughs) (laughs) And, And so my editor said, look, just think of it as each chapter is an article. And I said, oh, I can do that. Right. I can do that in a half hour. Yes, <laughs> right. exactly. And there was a businessman who read Entrepreneur Magazine looking for a ghostwriter to write a business book for him. He had all the ideas, but he didn't know how to write. Okay. So that's how it started. So that was it. And, yeah. and most of your clients, you said, are Southern California folk? Yes, they are. Okay. Many in Orange County. I, one in Northern California, another in Vegas. And but they're all on the West Coast. Somebody was telling me that Orange County is a really entrepreneurial, and I've found, had this experience too. A really entrepreneurial sort of environment with really creative, interesting folk. And I know you're not natively from. By well, your lovely accent, you're not natively from <laughs> <No>. Orange County. <laughs> I'm from uh, Cornwall. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. Do you do you find that this is is sort of a uniquely environ or? Um, entrepreneurial environment? Yes, I certainly do. I, I, many of my friends have their own businesses. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, the West Coast 
is is great for that sort of thing. There's a freedom out here. That, and I did live in Connecticut for many years, and I didn't find the same spirit over there. Yeah, right. Mm, People yeah. are a little bit more traditional. Yes, up. exactly. Whereas here, you know, sure, I'll hire a ghostwriter. <laughs> write my biography. <laughs> well, that's book. that's the other thing about Southern California is we feel, especially Orange County, I feel like we are really um, self-important, you know? Oh, you do? I don't know. Uh-huh. You know, that that we just think we're kind of larger than life, that nothing exists outside of L.A., that, you know, we're in the movies, we're on the stage, we're Botoxed up the yin-yang, that I, I feel like we have sort of an inflated sense of uh, ourselves <laughs> well you could be right um, judging by the many people who ask me to write their biographies right, exactly <laughs> oh i have such an interesting story <laughs> yeah okay. i mean that's a that's a statement that yes. people think they're so important that they need well a book actually they are you know every life is a wonderful story mm-hmm. some people say well i don't have such a great story to tell you and at the end of the book it's a wonderful story So I think Californians have reason to be important. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think there's, when you get a sense of somebody, can you tell immediately that they do have a story to tell? Or or is there there sometimes there's not enough there there to write about? And you're like, ugh. No, you know, it's funny. There's always plenty to write about. They often don't think there is. But when I draw them out and they've forgotten a lot of memories and I can trigger that off, and they'll come out with extraordinary anecdotes. It's just terrific. So how, so, do, you, how do you get inside their heads? Do you, you, I assume you have a pretty close personal relationship with these people over the course of time. Well, you do eventually, yes. Okay. But in the, the first meeting, you have to see if you click, if you, you have a rapport with each other. Yeah. And, and then you just sit down and chat with them. They get a bit nervous about, ooh, what do I have to do? Right. Say, no, we just sit down and have a conversation. And then, of course, I start a tape recording, and I record everything they say, and, and we just talk about their lives and their children. Usually the um, biographies are for the grandchildren. Oh, right. And these people, the clients want their families to know who they were, how they grew up, where they came from. Um, I'm writing a, bi- a biography right now of a gentleman who, whose ancestors came here in the 1600s wow. to the Plymouth Colony. So nine generations of his family were born in America. It's wonderful. It's yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Are there things they're reticent to talk about? You know, that like you can sense that the story's here, but they don't want to go there? And then no. no. They are, they'll tell you anything. <laughs> and I'll say, I don't think that should go in the book. <laughs> Stop talking. <laughs> don't yeah. spill the beans. Well, for it. instance, a book I wrote called Help, I've Hired a Lawyer. Yeah, right. Um, this lady found me. She had... She was very wealthy, and she had gone through about 25 attorneys, and she had layers upon layers of malpractice suits. She had attorneys suing attorneys suing attorneys, and she thought, oh, well, I will help other people be aware of the pitfalls of hiring an attorney. Amazing. So, of course, we didn't use real names. We just used some funny names, and um, so I wrote the book for her. 
<laughs> so this was more, um, it was a personal story, is that more? Yes, m- her, okay. story, her story, but she learned a lot during the, pro- over several years, during the process of, of hiring attorneys. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. So you have to become an expert in all sorts of different things. Yeah, and that's fun. Yeah. Doing the research, finding out. I'm doing a book right now for a gentleman who started a helicopter company, which is now a huge one. And he was the son of a coal miner. And he just is fascinating how he now is a billionaire practically. Wow. So you learn, I had to learn about helicopters. And you have to shape their story. I mean, you have to kind of... Because every story is an arc, regardless of... Yeah, but it is, you know, biographies and autobiographies are chronological. Okay. So you've got, you know, a process to follow. Right. Mm -hmm. So you pretty much write them, you know, autobiographically. Exactly. Except the first uh, prologue or chapter one needs to have some punch. So I usually look for the uh, most dramatic incident in their lives. And start with that. Okay. And and then bring in, sort of weave in, well, who are these? Who is this person? Right. right and right. then you can go, then you start the day they were born, sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> On a snowy day. <laughs> but then you have to interview relatives and friends and um, people they worked with. Anyone they want you to talk to. Okay. Children. So I'm, I'm loving that these people don't have any... I mean, I guess if they're coming to you and they want you to write their life story, they don't have any secrets. But I'm amazed that they don't have any secrets. They don't, know, really. That, that well, I think with. any secrets they may have had early in life have become... It's okay to talk about this now. Mm, right. And, you know, today everything is so open. Right. And there are, usually there are extenuating circumstances about something that may have happened to them right. or through them, and they've worked it out so that by the time they're doing their biography, it's turned out to be an okay thing to talk about. Amazing. Yes, it is. You are tuned into the DeMarco Polo Show right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I am here with Jill Amadio. I'm pronouncing your name correctly? Yes, thank Thank you. Thank God. (laughs) I know. I can't believe how often I don't do that. (laughs) So tell me the difference between a ghostwriter and a collaborator. A ghostwriter is is invisible, Okay. basically. Um, I wrote one book for a lady... It was a crime novel. She'd always wanted to write a book, but she didn't know how to write. But she could hire a ghostwriter. So the book, and then she wanted to write a crime novel, which I love, you know. So funny. So her name is on the book. And um, I wrote, I said, oh, let's do, let's have a good murder she said, okay, could we have one in, like, every other chapter? I said, no, no, no. <laughs> Only a couple of murders is all right, you know. <laughs> she was sweet. Very nice lady. And we had this a book signing up in Beverly Hills, where she lives. And she said, well, you must come to the book signing. I said, no, I'm the ghostwriter. Not supposed to exist. She said, I want you there. So I went and I sort of hovered behind her chair while she signed my book (laughs) in a white sheet very ghostly ethereal (laughs) yeah so that's fun so what what was her role her role was just saying yeah that's a good (laughs) 
to be frank. so funny. But she was delightful because she kept going off to Belize and Paris and everywhere. And, and I would write chapters and I'd say, well, you need to read. Oh, go, whatever you like is fine. That's amazing. So yes. you can just pay somebody to have your book on a jacket, basically. Yeah, exactly. That's funny. Yeah. Now, okay. a collaborator is I did one of Rudy Valley with his wife Eleanor Valley and so I my name is on the book as with Gilamadio okay or it could be and Gilamadio and you're usually in tiny print <laughs> your name you know teeny <laughs> teeny tiny yeah right but it's great you share the royalties okay and copyright okay okay and so it's this fun. is all in the contract of how oh yes okay. you must have a contract never write a book without a contract and give me a ballpark figure of how much it costs to have your your life story written down well i would say around 40 to fifty thousand dollars because it's a year's work right. and that's what i live on right right and uh you work it out you know and sometimes if it's a business book it's a lot less right because a lot of the information is perhaps on on the company CD or some DVD, whatever. Yeah. So it it does differ. Okay. Mm-hmm. Most interesting projects. Oh, they're Most wonderful. Most interesting subjects. Yeah. Yes, I did one for a woman um, who's retired, lives in San Clemente, and she was one of Monterey's first police women. Wow. And she had some wonderful stories to tell. Wow. Yeah. What, uh, tell me the year the first policewoman existed. Oh, it was, oh, it was back in, well, here it is. Here's the book. Mary Bell, her name is. Oh. Wonderful lady. And it was back in the 1920s. Amazing. Yeah. And they had brothels all over the place. I was going to say the the night. Yeah, 1920s. Because, you know, even in the 60s, women were sort of secretaries, flight, you know, know. stewardesses, teachers. Exactly. That's yes. amazing, 1920. Yes. Then I did another book for a lady in San Diego, actually. It's called The Girl with the Hat. And, and this was sort of a private memoir about her mother, <sighs> who was a penniless student at the University of Chicago. And her one wonderful, valuable possession was a hat with osprey feathers on it. And she adored that. I mean, she kept it locked up in a closet. And one day the feathers were missing. So the poor girl complained to the dean. And the dean was very upset because she said, well, nobody would steal it here, you know, Rockefeller's university. And so the girl was expelled. So she sued John D. Rockefeller, who was at that time the richest man in America. And she won the case. But the only way I could write the book was to have the um, newspaper clippings. It was a sensational trial all over the country. Great big headlines. It was such fun to write. That's amazing. Yes, yes. Now, in the corollary, are there times that you get sort of halfway through a project and you're just bored out of your mind? Oh, never. No, never? <laughs> never. <laughs> there's, there's so much interesting information from people. People are walking books. Yeah. They really are, yes. I love that. Yeah. Love now, they may get fed up with me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what, you here again <laughs> with my tape recorder? <laughs> so I usually spend the first two or three months getting all the information. Okay. Their life story. 
and then I'll say, leave me alone for three months, and I'll get going and do some chapters, write some chapters, and then I show them, are we going in the right direction? Is this what you wanted? Mm -hmm. And I've been very lucky, yes, you know. um, Sometimes I write, I have to do an autobiography of a gentleman, and a recent one was a retired U.S. ambassador who lives in Laguna Woods. And he had a marvelous, he's 96, marvelous career all over the world as an ambassador. So he had terrific stories, but he didn't want to sit down and talk to me. But he had an archive that was one room full of documents and letters and photographs. And he he was a pack rat. And he kept everything, which was wonderful because I could write the book from those and he had, you know, marriage certificates, birth certificates. It was, it was just great. So your own, his own library of his own life. Yes, at his absolutely. own presidential library. <laughs> well, plus when he was growing up, um, he would write to his mother every day, describing everything, and she would write back to him the same way. So he had these wonderful letters. Yeah, that that strikes me as um, obviously a lost art of of this generation, mm-hmm. you know, and and keeping all of those documents and information. I mean, obviously we don't write letters the way we used to, but well, we it's email now, isn't right. it? And okay. Skype, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> no exactly. records, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Except when the police want them. <laughs> and it's funny because everybody's life you feel is so open now because it's on Facebook or mm-hmm. MySpace or whatever it's on, but it's not the essence and substance of who we are obviously it's no it isn't and that you only learn by sitting down and being with that person week after week perhaps you know not every day obviously but you get to know someone when they're telling you of their life and you sympathize and you say oh you poor thing or or you say my gosh you did that right and they feel Easy. They're it, they're very easy to talk to, and they feel able to tell you anything, which yeah. is sweet. Now, are most of your clients older? Yes. Older. Yeah. Yes. A lot of them are retired. Some are CEOs who now want their to tell their grandchildren about how they grew up, right. and usually they were poor, you know, pioneers perhaps. And you don't, usually don't sit down with your kids and talk for hours and hours. So While they play way, video games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tear them away from those. But, uh, yes, it, it's, um, it's a wonder. I'm help, I feel I'm helping a client realize his dream, yeah. which is to put his memories on paper. In a well, you really, I mean, it really is sort of a, um, a way to be immortal. Right? Oh, it's, definitely. It's leaving yourself behind. Absolutely. Right. And yes, it's like having a family Bible. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Very sweet. Yeah. Have, what have you um, What have you learned about yourself in the process? Do you see reflections of yourself in some of the other people's stories, or do you have you made kind of some own self discoveries through this? Well, what you have to do when you're writing a biography or an autobiography is put yourself in that person's shoes. Mm-hmm. So you really have to keep yourself away from that right and but um i've discovered though i can feel the same emotions as the person telling me the story of you know something that happened and i can empathize highly with that yeah 
and I cry with them and <laughs> laugh with them. Yes, I, I don't have any problem sharing their emotions. That's what it would take. I yes, mean, because you, you really do. do have to sit inside you have their head. To. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, there was one lady who was telling me about um, her daughter who died, mm -hmm. and we're both sitting there crying. <laughs> And when I was then later on, months later, I'm writing it, I'm crying again, you right. know. Right. But, uh, you know, so you share what they had gone through. Yeah, that's, that brings up an interesting point, which is, um, and I often talk to writers about this on the, on the writing show, about whether or not the, the writing of it tells you something that the living of it couldn't have told you. Yes, because you can get into much more detail. Yeah, you have to slow everything down. Yes, and the, then you can also describe the environment and what was happening. Another thing I like to do is um, what's happening in the world at that time? Mm -hmm. Who was the president of the country? What, was there a war on? So that puts everything into context. So I bring that into the book itself which surprises some of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's the way to tell a story. Right. Yeah, right, right. yeah. And how many, how many projects do you do at a time? I usually do... I mean, you can only kind of do one at a time. Right? One a year. One, okay. One a year. I can, if it's a smaller book, a shorter book, you know, like some books are 180 pages. So I can do two books a year. I write very fast once I've got all the research done. But then, of course, there's also, I'll be writing a chapter and realize, oh, I don't have this information. And then I'll go back and find that. And, and it often changes. Books evolve as you write them. Right. So you might get up to chapter 10 and realize something in chapter 2 needs to be expanded. So um, you have to tell the client, you know, don't, this isn't in stone yet. <laughs> yeah. Has there ever been anything that the research that you do independent of talking to the client contradicts something they've said where you've had to, you know, suspect that they're kind of, you know, <laughs> telling you a different story than what the reality was? No, not really. Of course, you know, if they're, it's their book, you have to remember that. And you're writing what they want. That's true. You right, know, right. and plus your ego is gone. You know, yeah. you can't have an ego. But no, I um, haven't come across anything really like that. Um, sometimes they contradict themselves. So then, mm -hmm. you know, I'll say, well, in this letter it says such and such. Which do you want to use? Right, right. <laughs> you know? Have there been any family members that have gotten angry over what's been written? Not that I've heard, no. <laughs> I do the manuscript and say, here, goodbye. <laughs> That's when you keep your name off the cover. <laughs> <laughs> right. Although with the Rudy Valley book, yeah. um, I interviewed all kinds of celebrities that knew him. And like Jane Russell and Jonathan Winters and tons of, pe tons of people, movie stars. And he kept a log. He had four wives. And he kept a log of his lovers. And what their preferences were. Oh. <laughs> and I said to his wife, his fourth wife, should we put this in? Do you want this? Oh, yes, that's who he was. He was a wonderful lover. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> should you we know. put this line, graphic line right here in? <laughs> yes, <laughs> it crazy. is. Yeah, it's an interesting book. <laughs> I'll have to pick that up. I'm curious about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, any uh, any sort of surprises that have come out of some of these books? Kind of biggest, like, I don't know, life revelations that you've come across in writing other people's stories? No, not really. They're the ones who usually get surprised. Yeah, isn't that funny? <laughs> yes, especially when they've forgotten something and, and so, something else they will trigger it or they'll be talking about one episode and trigger something else, another memory. And they'll say, oh, I haven't thought about that person in decades. And it's you're always a wonderful story. Yeah. It's funny, this seems more therapy for them. Oh, definitely. Than anything else. Especially retired men. Interesting. Yes, because they don't know what to do with themselves. Right, right. (laughs) And so their wives call me and say, I want you to write his book, his memoir. That'll give him something. Get him out of here. Yes, keep him (laughs) occupied. Keep him occupied, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) What was the uh, most difficult subject matter you had to take on? Oh, gosh. Let me think. Um... Well, there was a lady in Vegas, I did her memoir, and she was an orphan, and I found her birth mother in Florida. So, um, through her connections, but she'd never met her, and I wanted her to. So she did go to Florida and meet her birth mother, but... Gloria, the client, was elderly herself, and her mother was almost 100 years old. Mm. And she'd been given up for adoption as a baby, so she had no connection to this woman, the real mother. And so it was difficult for her to confront her sort of thing. And so I wasn't sure if I'd done the right thing. How did it turn out in the end? Was she happy she saw her? She was, but she didn't stay in, you know, she uh, came back to Vegas and said she'd glad she'd done it and met her, but she didn't feel anything towards her, mm-hmm. which was perfectly understandable. Right. Yeah. That's amazing to be in your, you know, perhaps in your 80s or whatever she was yes. and meet your mother for the first time. That's incredible. I know. Yes. Well, it was an interesting story. Yeah. You know, a- this little girl was barefoot orphan brought up by a poor family themselves and but they were very loving that's amazing yes and she came she went to high school there in florida and then came to um california she got a job here and eventually married somebody um a greek Mm. immigrant wow and they uh, had a small casino in Vegas, and uh, just wonderful. Amazing wonderful. stories. Yes. Well, see, that is so American. Yeah, that is the American story, isn't yeah, it? The, yeah. You know, the one I'm doing now about the helicopter man, he's the quintessential American entrepreneur. Yeah. Came from nothing, and now it's wonderful. <laughs> Fantastic. Sadly, we've drawn down on our time, but let's uh, let's tell people how they can find you. Oh, well, I have a website. It's jillamadio.com. That's J-I-L-L-A-M-A-D-I-O.com. That's fantastic. They see all your books. Yes. They can commission you to write their stories. They can, I absolutely. Or, or, you know, or just talk. Yeah. I mean, I, it doesn't cost anything to have a meeting with me. I was going to say, yeah, this would be fantastic therapy. You could save all kinds of money on therapy. $40,000 is a bargain compared to... <laughs> <laughs>
Yes. Oh. And I often become firm friends with my clients. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah, yeah I You really sound do. like lasting friendships. This is yes, great. they're great That's people. That's great. Yeah, yes. Jill, thanks so much for well, taking the time. thank you, Marie. I fantastic. very much enjoyed it. It's fantastic. You are tuned in to the DeMarco Polo Show. We are um, right here on KUCI 88.9. FM in Irvine. We uh, are going to take a short break, but don't go away. Garbologist Ed Humes is going to be here in the second half talking trash. Um, I have to tell you from what I've read, this topic totally terrifies me. So uh, stick around and, uh, and we'll be right back here with Ed in just a few moments.
Welcome back to the DeMarco Polo Show on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org, and we are podcasting every second of these shows. I am back now with uh, with Ed Humes, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author. His latest book is Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash. It came out in April of this year. His other books include Force of Nature, The Unlikely Story, of Walmart's Green Revolution, the Penn award-winning No Matter How Loud I Shout, A Year in the Life of Juvenile Court, the bestseller Mississippi Mud, and Monkey Girl, Evolution, Education, Religion, and the Battle for America's Soul. But today it is all about garbage. If you live in Southern California, particularly if you live in Whittier or Hacienda Heights, you're in for a rude awakening about what's right outside your back door. Ed is going to tell us all about it. Ed, welcome. Thanks. Thank you. Ready to talk trash. All right, I was just going to say, you must be really tired of that talking trash joke, I would guess. You know, one time I was on a radio show and they started playing Oscar the Grouch music from Sesame Street. I thought that was pretty, <laughs> I love trash. You know that song? I uh, do love that song. No. <laughs> so, Poor you. I've heard it all. You've heard it all. Poor you. <laughs> all right, so, so let's start out with what drew you into this project. What drew you, what drew you to the trash? Well, it's interesting because I I had done a couple of projects um, that had an environmental connection, um, my last couple books, and the thing that kept coming up, whether you're talking about uh, energy, the economy, uh, pollution, climate change, it all comes back to the waste that we make, how much we waste, what we do with it, what we don't do with it, Um, and and it seemed to be the core issue. Businesses that are trying to be sustainable, the the big thing for them to overcome is is waste in their manufacturing or their packaging or whatever in transportation. Uh, So it's really at the heart of uh, many of the challenges we're we're facing these days, and and so uh, trying to get to the bottom of it and where it's coming from and how it's evolved over time, uh, uh, I got very interested in that. Yeah. Is it a coincidence that, so you live in Seal Beach, you're here in Southern California, where all of our, all of our guests are from. And, uh, is it a coincidence that the, you know, the, uh, Puente Hills, uh, land, (laughs) landfill is, uh, is kind of in our own backyard as well? Was that sort of a, a draw for you in this or, or, uh, were you independently interested in this and just stumbled upon that landfill? Uh, Well, I consider it a bonus. It isn't what (laughs) led me but. You know, once you start digging into the subject, uh, the first thing you learn, uh, or I did, uh, is that the nation's biggest active landfill is in our, is indeed in our backyard to put the hills landfill. I call it garbage mountain because it was a well, it literally is a mountain of trash, about uh, 130 million tons of it, 500 feet high. So, <laughs> I mean, it's a geographic feature, uh, which is what we do with our trash uh, uh, these days, and. Um, you know, it's got a beautiful view at the top. It's it's not a pointy <laughs> peak either. It's a big plateau of trash. You could put Dodger Stadium on top of this trash mountain. I mean, it's big. Yeah, you were uh, saying if you buried every elephant in the face of the earth, that that it would it was bigger than that. That's yes, crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. It is crazy, and you wouldn't believe the stuff that gets thrown out there. I mean, <laughs> you watch loads of food, and um, I saw a load of jacuzzis getting dumped there, and beds and furniture, and um, really useful stuff. Uh, more more recyclable goods than we actually recycle ends up in our landfills. It's it's, uh-huh. it's harrowing and, and strange and 
not what we think it is. Yeah, yeah. Americans seem particularly guilty, you know? I mean, we just seem like an incredibly wasteful culture. And I don't know what propagates (laughs) that mentality, but we really seem, like, egregious. (laughs) Well, we we do make more trash per person um, than uh, anyone else on the planet. Um, You want a couple of numbers? Uh, Mm -hmm. Because it's worse than we thought. It's worse than the official numbers are. I I ferreted out the data that Columbia University's been collecting it for a while. The average American makes over seven pounds of trash a a day. Oh, my God in your household. So, uh, you know, if you figure out over the average lifetime, we're all on track to make about um, 102 tons of trash in a lifetime. It's a lot of trash. If you just saved your household trash for a year for each person in your household and piled it on the lawn just for a year instead of rolling it to the curb and and pretending it disappears, you'd have 1.3 tons of trash for every person in your house on average on your front lawn. And then you begin to see the scope of, of just how much waste we make. The average Japanese person makes about a third of the trash per person that we make. Well, there's a robust consumer economy, yeah. and yet they just make a lot less waste. Some of it I don't feel that responsible for because, you know, we get so much junk mail in our mailbox that I can't control, you know, and I've got to get rid of it. And, you know, what do you <laughs> what do? you do? And, and you're right, the packaging, you know, when you get an Amazon package dropped on your doorstep, they, uh, you know, the tiny little disc inside compared to the massive amounts of crap that come around it is just staggering. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to do about that. I mean, you know, you can recycle it and feel a little better about it. But in general... I'm really glad you junk mail actually because that is the perfect storm of waste because it, it illustrates the, the kind of perverse incentives we have to be wasteful rather than less wasteful uh, and, and to get an idea of the scope of that problem about one in every hundred pounds that goes to a landfill today in america is junk mail if you can believe that one out of a hundred pounds of trash is junk mail 85 billion pieces of it were mailed last year it's over half the mail now and and we subsidize it. It gets a much lower rate than regular mail. So we're kind of giving an incentive to junk mailers. And then a secondary incentive is, as you pointed out, they don't have to clean up this unwanted waste that they're making. We do. Yeah. Taxpayers do or municipal governments do. So it's a double incentive to create waste. And if you begin to look at our culture, uh, there there's a lot of that. Uh, junk mail is just a really good example, but um, we provide a lot of... In incentives that go the wrong way if we really wanted to reduce waste. Yeah. I remember when I was growing up, it was diapers, you know, that if you use disposable diapers, you were just a bad person, and, you know, these are these were what were killing us. Is that still the case? Are there certain things that are just really horrible in landfills? You know, if, if we just limited our landfills to... Uh, Things like cat litter and and, <laughs> and, and dirty diapers, uh, we'd actually be in great shape. You know, these sort of noxious things that we don't know what to do with. Um, uh, it's the problem is that twenty five percent of the material going into landfills, the big single biggest category of stuff, is containers and packaging. All of which is theoretically, at least, recyclable. Yeah. So that's where the problem is. We have this new category of trash that didn't even exist in any significant amount in 1960 um, now is the biggest component of our trash. And that's where we've gone off the rails. And, and, and it's why since 1960 we, we make twice as much trash per capita yeah. uh, now. 
That's crazy. So how how prevalent are landfills? So we have this one in Puente Hills, which is, you know, for all of us in Orange County here, it's kind of the biggest one, and it's right out kind of side our back door. If you live in Hacienda Heights, like I said, you, it's really outside your back door. Um, and then where's the next closest one, and kind of how, how far apart are these things spaced from each other? Well, you know, that is just the largest of many landfills in Los Angeles County, and then Orange County has a, has its own uh, series of landfills. Um, some are small. Many are privately run. Some are municipal as uh, or quasi-public, the way Puente Hills is. But nationwide, there's about 1,400 major sanitary landfills now, mm-hmm. um, and, and nobody knows exactly how many small and and unregulated dumps there are, um, but they exist as well, and they're a big health risk. But we've gradually shrunken the number of landfills we've had in the country and and tried to regulate them and clean them up, and and, and since the 1990s have had some success at that. So they're a lot easier to keep track of uh, now than, than they used to be, and we don't burn our trash so much. I mean, it used to be <laughs> the problem in the 50s uh, were, were flaming landfills, the flaming garbage dumps and tires burning and, and all kinds of really awful uh, outwardly polluting things. And we've licked that, but we haven't figured out how to answer the next step, which is how do we reduce the flow of waste? Uh, you know, basically, we just keep ramping it up. Yeah. It's almost as if it's become a measure of our prosperity. You know, we know, hey, the economy's good. We're making more trash. It's <laughs> <laughs> the opposite of common sense because if we were, you know, a thrifty people, uh, we were if we were using our resources wisely, which you would think is also a good indicator of a good economy, we'd be making a lot less waste. So we haven't made that connection yet as a as a culture. And other countries are actually beating us on that score, and they're they're going to beat us in the new economy if we don't wise up. And so part of the story I tried to tell is the different. Uh, and and hopefully human uh, uh, indicators of how we can find the way back from this, whether it's a family that's reducing its waste or, you know, artists who are working in San Francisco uh, working with trash to, <laughs> to illustrate how useful this material really is. And, and so there's some cool stories going on of how we could do better. Yeah, give us some, give us a couple of examples of what we could do, the kind of easy steps around the house. I know you can, you know, take your canvas bags to the grocery store and, you know, be a little bit better about recycling. Are there some really obvious things that we could do that aren't that hard that would cut down, for, you know, move us from seven pounds to six pounds a person a day? Oh, I, you, you touched on it with the with the, bag, the grocery bags. Getting getting rid of dispose, obviously disposable um, single-use items. You know, part, part of the... Part of the challenge we face is we've created this whole category of products that are essentially instant trash, you know, whether it's plastic utensils or uh, uh, styrofoam plates and cups and, you know, Starbucks cups and the, um, you know, we make most of that stuff, particularly the plastic uh, parts of it, out of this incredibly durable material that lasts for hundreds or thousands of years, uh, and yet the object itself has a few minutes or, or hours of useful life. (laughs) we're paying a lot of money that this instant trash and it's again it's the biggest part of our waste stream so uh, and and most of it doesn't get recycled you know if you look at the if in the if you look at the fine print uh, if you're 
local sanitation department has a list of what you can and can't recycle. Most people are putting everything plastic and paper in their recycling bins that they have it, and then you find out, well, the plastic utensils don't actually get recycled, the plastic bags don't get recycled, the plastic film doesn't get recycled, and on and on. The list of what doesn't get recycled is actually longer than what does. And and so this sort of salve to our conscience is that, oh, yeah, but it's getting recycled. turns out not to really be true. So if we can remove this wasteful and costly aspect of our daily lives, at least in a small degree. Bring your own bag to the supermarket. You know, stop buying bottled water, which is way more costly and no better in quality than what comes out of your tap. But, you know, we churn out 60 million uh, uh, plastic water bottles uh, uh, an hour, I believe the figure oh is, in, in this really? country. We're, we're some some a phenomenal figure. and 60 uh, million an hour. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to wrap my mind around that statistic. That's unbelievable. Wow. Uh, of, uh, of this stuff and pay a lot because if you're buying them one at a time at, this, at the convenience store, you're paying more for that 12 ounces of water than you are for gasoline, <laughs> ounce for right. ounce. So it's not cheap. Uh, and most of it is just municipal water supply water. You know, it's not it's out of somebody's tap anyway, so you're not really getting anything special. So, right. And yet you're making this huge waste. You're spending all this extra money. And I suppose it does, uh, you know, uh, benefit the, the, the bottled water companies. But other than that, it's really hurting your household economy. So to, to the extent that you can use reusable containers and buy in larger containers. You know, this family I looked at in San Francisco area, Bay Marin County, actually, uh, they had to downsize because of a job change, and they moved to a smaller house, and they started trying to figure out, well, how, how can we have less stuff? Because we can't fit all this stuff we accumulated uh, in our new house. And then they started looking at, well, do how can we save money? Can we buy a gallon bottle of shampoo instead of, uh, and put it in our own little bottles instead of getting, you know, 20 smaller bottles of shampoo over time? And how much money will we save doing? How much less waste will we make? And they sort of systematically went through their house. They ended up cutting their household expenses 40%. Wow. Wow. Looking at these wasteful choices by buying things in bulk or in larger size containers because it's more economical to do that and it's also greener to do that. And and they just stopped buying wasteful things and started buying used and refurbished things because, well, it saved money. And, boy, if you get a refurbished computer from Apple Computer, it's $200 less and they give you the same warranty and you can't tell the difference between new and why the heck wouldn't we do that? And, and then it's something that's being reused and reconditioned rather than manufactured from start to finish with the electronics going into, you know, a, a, a waste cargo vessel to China. So, right. so it's a win-win again. So and there's, there's a lot of things you can do, even if you don't care about the fact that um, – Landfills are, among other things, huge contributors, contributors to greenhouse gas emissions. If you don't care about the environment, care about your your economic well-being. Being less wasteful is actually a great economic strategy. Yeah, your own bottom line. My uh, my guest tonight is Ed Humes. The book is Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what would motivate me because I have to admit, 
historically I've been one of the offenders who for always, I have the canvas bags, but they're in the back of my car and I never make them into the store. And, and, but when we travel in the, so we, we go to, you know, Europe sometimes in the summer and there, if you don't take it, I mean, they don't have bags, you know, <laughs> so if you don't bring your bag, they will sell you a bag if you absolutely need it, but they will look at you with this contempt and sort of, you know, who the heck are you? And I feel like the shame factor... And you change your behavior very quickly when a whole line of people is staring at you like, you know, you're the alien with three heads. Uh, you know, the dirty American who's coming to their country. We're seeing that right now in Los Angeles County. Uh, they A year ago, Los Angeles County, uh, the unincorporated areas, L.A. City is trying to catch up on this now, but uh, they uh, passed a uh, plastic bag and a paper bag ordinance. No more plastic grocery bags in, in major retail groceries, places like the supermarkets and Trader Joe's and so forth. Uh, and you can have a paper bag, but you have to pay a dime a piece for it. And the store gets to keep the dime. It's not a tax. So it passes uh, muster under, under California's various propositions and restrictions on, on taxation. Uh, and so in the space of the year, L.A. County has seen 90% of People are bringing their own bags to stores now. First, there was grumbling, and, you know, it's funny that I have a Trader Joe's right down the street. There was uh, people say, oh, I forgot about the bag, and it's, I left it in my car, and they're going out, and the cans are spilling out of their arms, and they're just walking, because they wouldn't pay the dime for the bag. That dime changed their behavior, because it used to be free, and they didn't want to pay for it. Right. It's, it's funny, but you get a huge buy-in even from a from what is essentially a meaningless fee, it would seem. Uh, and, and so now L.A. County is reporting over 90% of people are bringing their own bags. Now, that may mean they have a cloth bag or a nylon bag. It may mean they're reusing old paper bags that they save. It doesn't matter. It all has the same waste reduction benefit. So uh, little things like that have a tremendous impact on people's behavior. Another thing, uh, you know, I got, I did a lot of online stuff when the book came out, and, and this guy in New York says, hey, you know, what's in it for me? I don't, they don't punish me if I don't sort my stuff into a, the recycling bin. I can just put it all in the same trash can. So I do. Why shouldn't I? <laughs> and you sort of say, you know, you just want to fly through the phone and strangle them. But how, you know, it's not going to take you any more time to do, do it the right way. Uh, a lot of communities have said, yeah, okay, well, we're going to do something about people with, with your attitude, pal, and from now on, we're going to charge uh, through a pay-as-you-throw. Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> that's what Portland does. So if you ask for a little trash can, uh, uh, and then you put all your recycling in the right place, it doesn't matter how much you have, you get a smaller trash bill. If you make more trash and you need a bigger trash can, they charge you more a month. Well, now you have the perfect incentive. Instead of the incentive to be wasteful, you have a great market incentive to be less wasteful and why shouldn't the people who make less trash pay less they should they, they should and they people should, who make yeah. more trash they pay more and they, that that only that makes perfect sense that's fantastic so i think if to that too and and that changes behavior you know i interviewed this the, the first garbologist guy who an archaeologist who, who shifted to studying modern trash instead of ancient trash which is what archaeologists <laughs> spend a lot of time looking at anyway because trash doesn't lie it tells you a lot about yourself and he he came up with a number of different postulates and corollaries and one of them is trash will always expand to fit whatever the volume of container you have yeah isn't that <laughs> true that is totally true more trash I love it. I love it. Unfortunately, we've drawn down on our time. I uh, my calling card of all things is uh, 
is uh, expired. Isn't that great? <laughs> My calling card expired today. So that uh, that was Ed Humes. His book is Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash. It is fantastic. And uh, among other things, uh, it's a fantastic read and it's totally enthralling. But among other things, it's incredibly well written. Ed is just a fantastic writer. And um, so anyway, I, I encourage you to pick that up. The uh, it, These statistics will curl your hair the uh the size of this Puente Hills landfill it has its own um it has its own weather patterns it's so big that it has it's like created its own uh weather systems and uh that can't be good right that's I feel like that's not good. Anyway, so you have been tuned into the DeMarco Polo Show on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And uh, we will be right back here with you next uh, next Monday night at 5 o'clock. Stay tuned. <laughs> Oh,